Welcome back to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus, an online lit mag dedicated to artful autobiographical writing, which you can read today at autofocuslit.com and follow on Twitter and Instagram at autofocuslit. I'm the publisher of Autofocus, Michael Wheaton. Today on the show, I talk with Tope Follerin. Tope Follerin is a Nigerian-American writer based in Washington, D.C., His debut novel, A Particular Kind of Black Man, was published by Simon & Schuster in 2019, and he's garnered many awards for his work, including the Kane Prize for African Writing, and most recently, the Whiting Award for Fiction. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Tope Follerin. So I had this, uh, maybe about two months ago, it could have been longer before that, I should say, but um, somebody from Utah Humanities reached out and said, you know, would I be willing to come to Utah for five days to like visit a bunch of schools and libraries? And I leaped at the opportunity. I was born and raised in Utah. I lived there for 13 years, moved in 94 and haven't been back since. So I hadn't been back in Utah for 27 years. Um, And it's really weird because it's really an important part of my life, obviously. You know, I spent many of my formative years there. Uh, began to kind of grapple with a lot of the stuff that I grapple with my work in Utah. Um, and Utah features prominently in my novel as well. And so it's weird that I haven't had the opportunity to go back. So um, it's a trip I was looking forward to for quite some time. And and maybe a couple days before I left, actually, maybe I'd say five or six days before I left, I got this bump on my back and I thought like a spider had bitten me. Um, and I was like, you know, whatever, kept moving. And then an identical one appeared next to it. And I was like, okay, this is weird. But I was about to like, you know, keep it moving. My wife was like, no, you're not. Go see the doctor right now. In a really stern tone of voice. You know, the kind of voice you can't ignore, you know. Um, so I, I went to see that I saw the doctor. She instantly said, oh, you have shingles. And it was weird. You know, I see all these shingles commercials. And I was like, you know, they're like, don't worry about it till you're 50. And so uh-huh. it wasn't top of mind for me at all. Um, and so I was like, fine, you know, I continued with my day, you know, it was like, I, um, you know, went to dinner that evening, the evening of the diagnosis, I went to dinner, hang, hung out the following day, uh, Sunday night, I woke up to the most extreme pain I have ever oh, experienced no, really? in my life. It was insane. It was insane. Um, never anything close. I just... It felt like, and I'm not exaggerating here, I felt like somebody was stabbing, like six people were stabbing with knives. It was just like the most intense, insane pain. My doctor had actually said before, she said, if you have, you know, like the worst version of it, worst case scenario, you might feel like you're having like a really severe heart attack, but don't panic because, um, you know, it's just nerve pain. And that's exactly how I felt. It felt bad, so bad, in fact, that I had to cancel my flight. My flight was Monday morning and I just could not make it. I was just... In a really bad way, talked to my doctor again and said, "Hey, I think I'm really suffering here." And so she died. She, um, you know, prescribed a really potent pain medicine, and um, and so that helped a lot. And yeah. I was able to kind of kind of get myself together to get on a flight on on Tuesday. And so the trip itself was great. I visited, you know, a few schools and libraries, and was really great to kind of be in Utah. I was surprised you know, by how diverse my audiences were, recognizing, of course, that they may have self-selected in a way because, you know, I'm a black person going there. So <laughs> excited to see me out there. But um, yeah, <laughs> it was really diverse and uh, 
and, you know, wonderful people, people who care deeply about literature. It was a really great, you know, one of the highlights for me was actually not an event. I spent a few hours in Salt Lake City. Um, I guess it would have been uh, last Friday, I think, or maybe it was last Thursday. Um, and so there was a kind of like street party for Halloween somewhere in Salt Lake City. And like all these people were out and were playing pop music. And it was just like really great to see because it doesn't yeah. at all jive with my memory of Utah. Mm-hmm. This was a really like diverse, uh, fascinating uh, place and people seemed happy. And it was just really cool. And, and it was perfect temperature. Um, so I, I had a lot of fun. You know, I was yeah. the entire time. It's entirely possible that I was hallucinating all of this. because. <laughs> I was on so much medicine. Um, <laughs> and then on the way back, I got caught up. I'm sure you might have read this about the American Airlines, like debacle that happened this past weekend. No, I and didn't so, hear about it. Oh, so American, like they canceled like a lot of flights. And so my first flight from, um, I was flying from Salt Lake City to Chicago. Like my first flight was canceled. They booked me on an, another flight. That flight was canceled. Jeez. They put me on a Delta flight to Chicago, get to Chicago. Um, they've canceled, they canceled like three or four flights to DC. I'm standing in this line. They finally put me in this really shoddy hotel. I stay overnight in Chicago. And then I got on the first thing smoking back to, uh, to DC. So just like a really interesting trip. (laughs) (laughs) You seem okay. You feeling better now? I do. I, you know, I'm still in some pain, but I feel a lot better than I did, uh, you know, a couple Mondays ago. Um, And I'm heartened by the fact that I feel better. My doctor offered two possibilities. She said, like, the way this typically goes is you have, like, a two- or three-week course, and then it kind of resolves itself, or you're in the trenches for about three months. And so my trajectory right now is more towards a two- or three-week, and I hope that continues to be the case. Oh, man. Um, well, what kinds of things did you do at the schools and libraries? Like, what what were they bring you in, bringing you in to talk about? Just literature in general or? Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of them were just like, you know, talk about the book and sort of do, you know, you kind of pre reading spiel and then do the mm-hmm. reading and then the Q and a had a couple of those. Um, I spoke at a college called snow college uh, in Ephraim, Utah, which is a town of about 7,000. It's a pretty big school. I can't, I don't want to guess to me, but it seemed big. They had like a really big, auditorium. I spoke at their convocation. And so this is, you know, a space where students, I guess, are more or less forced to kind of show up. (laughs) I remember quite fondly or maybe not so fondly doing the same in college. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was interesting because I spoke about decolonizing art uh, there. And I was nervous about doing this because I've delivered this presentation in a few other places, for example, at Georgetown. Um, and yeah, there you have, you know, sort of audiences that are more or less sympathetic to my views about that particular topic. And I wasn't quite sure if that would be the same, if, if they would, you know, these students would be willing to kind of hear what I had to say. So on the drive to Ephraim, I was like sort of like revising parts of it and making sure. <laughs> um, but I kept certain parts in like, you know, my ideas about, for example, make America, make America great again, the kind of narrative force in American history that enabled someone like Trump to ascend to the president, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And they were receptive, you know, I had this a bunch of people came up afterward and said, Oh, thank you so much for coming. And I spoke a little bit. I mean, I, I'm making the, the talk sound really kind of, I suppose, broad because I also spoke a bit about VR and AR, which is something I'm currently oh. obsessed with. And so I spoke a bit about like how just, you know, the kind of idea that like an AR and especially in VR, like you have an opportunity to kind of assume personas that, 
we can't and mm-hmm. you know the real world in, in IRL if you will uh, and so um, yeah that was a part of my talk as well and a couple people came up afterwards and they're really into like VR and someone was telling me like oh yeah I love it and I have my oculus and I'm doing all kinds of stuff and it's great because I'm able to leave Utah for a moment and like interact yeah. with friends of other people and so, uh, one person came up afterward and was like you know I didn't agree with what you said but thank you so much for coming they were so polite is my point yeah. they were incredibly polite um, and I just I was telling my wife this when I when I got back like um, and it's a cliche to say, but it's true. Like everybody was just like incredibly nice and polite. Um, you know, everybody like sort of gives you a proper greeting, you know, when you see them. And um, and so I was also moved by that as well, because that's certainly not the case in D.C. D.C. is mm-hmm. a place and I've become accustomed to this where you meet someone and they're in not all D.C. I don't want to say this, but like in the D.C. where I work and the D.C. where I live as well. I think people are always trying to kind of assess your proximity to power, you know, so you'll say your mm. name and then we'll wait for the kind of like, okay, what do you do? How close <laughs> is that to Biden? Like, or how close is that? To, you know? <laughs> and that wasn't the case at all in Utah. It was just like, you know, thanks for coming. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing your work. So that was, that was a cool element of that as yeah. well. Yeah. So when you talk about decolonizing art, you know, what are, what are some of the things you get into? You know, like I have a, a broad understanding of, of what that would mean, but, you know, um, not necessarily a, a, a specific idea of like, you know, what that looks like or, or kind of what, what kind of, t- just what kind of topics you bring up in it? Yeah, a couple of things. One, I talk about, uh, you know, there, there's uh, this great activist who entered a museum in Paris last summer and he kind of went up to... Um, he grabbed like a, a sculpture and he he attempted to take it out and he was immediately kind of, you know, I guess the security guards kind of collapsed on him and, and he was arrested for this action. And when he was speaking to the press, he said, you know, this is from Chad. Um, it was sort of looted from, from Chad. It has no business being here. Um, and he wanted to have a conversation about ownership, mm. you know, like the, the museum says they, they own the piece cause it's been in their possession for many, many years. And he says, well, you know, they didn't ask to take this, they took it. And, um, and so, you know, sort of, I started by kind of asking, like, I asked people in the audience, was it right for him to try to steal it? Because, you know, from a kind of a legal perspective, the law protects the museum, you know, right. it's their thing. And, and he took it. Um, but there's a moral question is there to grapple with, you know, like he is sort of asserting, and I think this is probably right, that, um, that, that this belongs to a culture and this belongs right. in a very specific context. So I start with that and then um, go on to talk a little bit about literature, you know, even in this moment when you see a lot of diverse voices kind of uh, writing books and being celebrated for their books, um, it's still, all of this is still happening within the context of gatekeepers who are decidedly not usually not diverse making a decision about what kind of books will um, be celebrated and what books will be um, sort of marginalized and um, and I think there's a kind of we're in a space where we can be deceived into believing that things are going in the right direction mm-hmm. um, especially last summer for example uh, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and they're all yeah. these people happen and there's this kind of um movement that happens in the publishing world as well as well you know when a bunch of gatekeepers say okay now is the time to kind of you know ensure that all these books by people of color are getting the attention they deserve but a couple of things happen there one the books that 
um, get that attention are books that kind of speak uh, to that particular moment, more or less, right? Books that mm-hmm. are about, like explicit discrimination or books that are about, you know, like sort of police brutality. Yeah, all the anti-racist books that came out. All the anti-racist books. There's a kind of functional purpose to it, right? Mm-hmm. And part of the argument that I make is that um, I don't, I still think that a lot of people have a hard time seeing literature by people of color as literature. Now you can, can be seen as a kind of guidebook for, okay, here's what's happening in this moment. Read this book. You'll understand it. Maybe you'll be less racist or whatever that argument might be. <laughs> but, um, and it's, I wrote a, as you know, I wrote a piece about, you know, mm-hmm. like sort of, um, auto fiction in the new Republic, uh, I guess it would have been last year. And I make a kind of similar argument in that piece, which is, um, you know, like, a lot of the process of deciding what is part of a canon and what qualifies as art is, uh, you know, sort of critics getting together and saying, okay, well, this is a a work of art or this isn't. And the really funny thing that's happening uh, right now is that even as a lot of books by black writers win awards, there's not this kind of really essential um, critical analysis that's happening about their work as well. And so you have critics who are able to say, oh, there's this thing that's happening. There's this new movement. It's called autofiction. It's incredible, guys. Come read all these books. Um, But they're highlighting books by certain people and to the exclusion of all kinds of other things. I haven't seen a similar kind of movement among, you know, or I guess a similar kind of acknowledgement among critics about something else that might be happening. For example, I haven't seen critics say, well, what's, you know, all these younger people of color writing books about, you know, identity, for example, what's happening Mm -hmm. here. Um, The one thing that you might see, and you have seen this, is you'll say, okay, there's all these African writers who are writing books, but there's not at all an analysis of what they're writing about. It's just like they're, you know, they're African writers who are writing books. Um, Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of lists that circulated last summer, you know, here are black writers you should read, um, but nothing at all. There's not any engagement with the work. There's not kind of, you know, James Wood treatment of the New Yorker, you know, there's this exciting writer and he's the vanguard or she's the vanguard of this entirely new uh, literary movement that's happening. And so um, my final point is that um, I think the folks who are in charge, the gatekeepers will do what they have to do to survive. And if that means somebody comes up to them and says, hey, diversify the book list, they'll do it. But that's the most kind of cursory approach to decolonizing literature and mm-hmm. uh, ensuring that more voices um, are kind of at the vanguard of this moment and are determining what what literature means moving forward. Yeah. And, you know, obviously some tie into the conversation that um, we recorded and put on uh, YouTube for Autofocus's channel with you and Teresa Carmody yeah. um, and Ryan Rebus, where you go into a lot of that. And I remember like one of the things um, brought up in that conversation is how even when uh, like a work of quote unquote, like auto fiction is done by uh, a black person or someone quote unquote, like ethnically diverse or whatever, yeah. then yeah. it's, it's um, it gets critically praised if it's legible to the white audience. It can, it's still, it's like, it still will only be viewed in the context of the white institution Yeah. in order for it, in order for it to get the critical attention, it still has to kind of do what, <laughs> like the books by white authors are doing for those critics, yeah. um, which is such an interesting um, piece of it. And, you know, the whole industry almost has to, <laughs> to collapse and be rebuilt. Yeah. 
I think it's a structural thing. I think you're exactly right. And um, I think the thing that all artists want, all artists desire is like radical freedom, just freedom to produce. And here's the thing, like it's incredibly difficult to make it as a writer, right? Like it's just difficult. It's an artist, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And whatever the case may be, you're likely to jump through all kinds of hoops. It's likely to take a very long time. You spend a few minutes walking through a museum and you're accosted with all these stories about, you know, artists that we now admire, and even deify in a way who in their day were had a really difficult time. You know, they weren't taken seriously. And so I think as an artist, I recognize that I recognize that it's, it's difficult. Uh, but that said, I think there's another la- layer of difficulty you face if you're not part of the mainstream. Like, so, for example, um, there was a time I was working on a piece and I was really kind of besotted with the work of Damon Galgut, who just won uh, the Booker as it happens. Uh he wrote a book called, I think, In a Strange Room that was also that was shortlisted for the Booker maybe a decade ago or so. I love that book and I love mm-hmm. what it did with um, he did this really fascinating thing with point of view. Um, and I hope I haven't read it in a few years, so I might be um, I might flub this. But my recollection is that the protagonist of the book, we started with like third person and then as the pr- protagonist came to awareness of himself, it kind of shifted to first person. And it like it was really incredible how Galgut did it. It was just kind of this incredibly kind of seamless transition. And inspired by that, I thought, well, wow! In certain ways, that captures what I'm trying to do in my work. I had just written a uh, written a short story that went from first person plural to singular. I don't mean to get too technical, but just in terms of telling the story. <laughs> uh, anyway, like I would just I was really um, taken with that approach, and and I was also reading like sort of you know, uh, auto fiction. So I was reading the works by Lerner and Knoskart and, and a lot of the Knoskart stuff. I don't know. Some people say Knoskart. Some people say Knoskart. Um, like, it's just kind of like this diaristic, like I did this and that. And obviously like it's, his work is celebrated. And in some quarters, I suppose, criticized for this, like he's getting into the minutia of his, of his day. Mm -hmm. I I thought that was interesting as well. Um, I was thinking about Chantal Ackerman's work, the great, uh, director, and how she kind of tracks the character as she goes through, like, you know, sort of her day and how monotonous that can be. Anyway, like, I, I wrote a story that, like, was kind of um, situated in this world, of this world of, of tracking a character through the day and even sort of playing with point of view. And, uh, and I sent it out and somebody got back to me and said, you know, this just isn't interesting. Like, we don't, we don't care what this character is doing during, you know, like, day by day. And that could have been, it could have been, you know, sort of my inability to do it from a craft perspective. That's one possibility that I have to sort of entertain, I suppose. But what came to me, and as somebody who cared, cares deeply about craft, um, I'm not sure if that was the case. I think what they were saying was that, like, this life, this life you're depicting isn't intrinsically interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why Knoskot's work has garnered all this attention and praise is that the argument is that that life is intrinsically interesting. Even if he's doing boring stuff, if he's telling us about going to the kitchen, pouring cereal into a bowl, putting the milk into the bowl and then getting some memories, seeing the cereal, like one could argue that's really boring, but one could argue like, okay, that's interesting because I'm a middle-aged white person and gosh, I have those thoughts as well. That's really interesting to me. And I want to see how this character is processing it. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you were trying to engage with a, a work by a writer of color, you want to know, hey, what's happening with this war, you know, somewhere in Africa? What's happening with you getting arrested for this? Like, it becomes more storytelling as, um, you know, kind of 
sort of showing or demonstrating what we see in the news, as opposed to your life is intrinsically interesting. You're getting up in the morning, you're having your coffee, you're doing this, you're thinking these thoughts. And I'm like, from my vantage point, you know, the character, the person of color who's going through these things might be interesting as well, because as they're thinking their thoughts, they're also kind of living in this world in which structural racism exists. And so they're having to navigate all kinds of things that the mm-hmm. character might might not have to grapple with. So I'm interested in Kanaskar. I love his work. I think it's really yeah. interesting. But I, I think there should be space for somebody else as well who's sort of uh, going through you know what? What their day, their days, and trying to reckon with the world, and at the same time reckon with this system that prevents them from being fully free. Yeah, it's almost like um, you know the burden of narrative <laughs> doesn't apply to him <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because exactly. of yeah, intrinsic yeah. interest. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I never thought about it that that way, but I wanted to talk more too about kind of your life in DC. Yeah, um, you know, I know you have a family. Um, I I know you somewhat recently, right, became the executive director of the Institute of Policy Studies, you know, and I know, you know, you're a literary writer, novelist, and I know you do a lot of essay work. And so it seems like a lot of, like a lot of different things (laughs) to manage, right? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I can relate to, you know, toggling between family, you know, work and, and writing, but the work that I do, I'm a teacher, I could teach English and it lends itself to the, like, it's not too hard to toggle between them, but I'd love to hear more about your work at the Institute of Policy Studies and, and how it relates to your writing life or, or how it doesn't. I imagine that there can be a little relation, but it, it, it seems like, you know, like it's a, it seems like a very important job and like a job where you have to be very engaged, you know, intellectually, probably emotionally. And I just, you know, I just wonder like how that toggle, that, how that toggling is for you, you know, is, is does it feel like whiplash, yeah. you know, going through your normal life yeah. or have you kind of found a way to, to make it all seem melded? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. I have to say like, you know, I love my job. I work at a progressive research institution. And so we um, produce analysis about various things that are happening from a progressive angle. We're focused on both domestic and international um, sort of events. Uh, We're especially plugged into inequality, you know, sort of uh, income and wealth inequality. We're also spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, stuff that's happening in the Middle East as well. We're focused on climate change and the impact that's having on people. Um, there's a lot of, we do a lot of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, that's, it's interesting because during the day I'm thinking about a bunch of things. One, first of all, like our programs and ensuring they're healthy, that the kind of uh, financial health of the, the institute, which means, you know, it's another way of saying fundraising. There's a lot of fundraising <laughs> that's involved. Mm-hmm. And then kind of being like the public face of this place, you know, which means showing up at places and giving talks or speeches or, you know, talking to the press. There's a bunch that's uh, th- that I, I have to do there. And and, and it's, it takes up a lot of my mind, to be honest. And I think about that all the time. Like, um, I want to, I am an artist. I want to produce work. I want to produce literature and that takes time. Um, and so the approach that I've had for, you know, I've been in this job for six months is, you know, like I'll kind of try to set aside some time at night for writing, to try to get down at least 500 to a thousand words every night. Um, and that's proven to be difficult because there's stuff that's always kind of preventing me from doing that. Um, so I'm still figuring it out to be honest. Like, yeah. um, I have 
managed to produce a couple essays in the past six months. That's been great for me, and I'm happy about that. I'm working on an essay now um, uh, that was commissioned, and that's due in about a month. And so that's also, I'm glad to have that. But I also have the novel that I'm working on that I'm not able to work on. And that is has been for me difficult. I've not been able to work on this novel the way I worked on the last one. Right. And I've, you know, I've read a bunch by, you know, I've actually taken comfort from reading, you know, like work by Alice Monroe, for example, and Toni Morrison and, you know, women who um, had other lives, you know, they were, they had domestic responsibilities that a lot of men don't take seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also wanted to produce work. And so, I'm saying to myself that it is possible to kind of um, to do that and also like run, you know, an organization like this. And also before I took the job, the board, you know, I was talking with the board and I emphasized to them, you know, I'm an artist, I'm a writer. This is really important to me. Mm-hmm. I will be doing this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we like we want that sensibility. That's important to us. And we want you to bring that into your job. And so I've been trying to do that as well. But my first responsibility is to ensure that everything's going well with the organization, I think, before I start to kind of mess yeah. around with stuff. Um, but I definitely kind of read the biographies of other people who are in a similar position in DC and many of them managed to produce books. And I was like, okay, I can do that as well. But you know, <laughs> in the job, I'm like, well, I think there's, there's some ghostwriting that might be happening. You know, they're mm-hmm. writing nonfiction they have research assistants who help. Um, so, I mean, it, not to malign those, if they are in fact kind of sitting down and doing work, I, then I, I commend them for it, but it's, it's really difficult to do it. And so, um, the, the final thing I'll, I'll say about this is that I am, my politics are very progressive. And so, and that inevitably filters into my work, you know, right. I, and even as I talk about sort of, you know, sort of the fact that I think a lot of gatekeepers don't think that, um, that the lives of people of color are intrinsically interesting. A lot of that comes from the work that I think of, that I'm doing during the day, you know, mm. I'm thinking about the kind of historical legacy of sexism and racism, the, all the anti-trans stuff that's happening in this country. The fact that the, the, we have a hard time in this country and in the West in general, sort of um, saying that all lives matter equally, right? And so, um, and that you know is something that I think about in my work as well. And so, the, yeah, there are kind of there's a correspondence that happens between the work and what I do during the day. And, you know, I will at certain points, uh, you know, pull up my manuscript if I have a couple minutes and write at, during the day. And, and at night, I might have an idea about work and I might place whatever I'm reading or working on aside and, and work on that. So mm-hmm. and I, I welcome that. I welcome, you know, I think in my case, it's helpful to have like an opportunity to turn off, you know, to not think about literature so much because I would otherwise and focus on something else and vice versa. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, one thing I've had to do also like to make myself (laughs) feel better with my productivity is kind of redefine what I take as being productive creatively. Like, you know, some of those days where it's like, all right, well, like I'm not going to get the words down today, but if I, at least if I open this thing on my phone and like read through some paragraphs or like remind myself what I'm doing, think about it for a little bit and it's like, okay, all right, I did something. (laughs) I don't know that it's a recipe for success, but but it feels, you know, it it helps me to feel good about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think about Edward P. Jones, I think, let's say he published Lost in the City in 92 and his novel, The Known World, didn't come out, I think, until 2003, if I'm not mistaken. I could have that last date wrong. But whatever the case may be, like he talks about like, 
he didn't take him that long to write the novel, but he was writing it in his head for years, right? And so I've tried to take that on as well. Like I have a notebook I carry with me everywhere. I'm in the back of my mind, you know, um, I'm always kind of thinking and processing. And I try to also kind of adopt the approach that Susan Sontag took to her work, at least according to her journals, which is she spent a lot of time just soaking up art, soaking up life and, um, and all that. And doesn't discard all of that's important. All that goes into the the mixture. So, um, yeah, I can't, I don't have even just before, you know, four years ago, my, my oldest daughter is almost five. So five years ago I could like, you know, just walk around and think grand thoughts and and write. (laughs) And that's not an option that's available to me right now, but other people, other parents have produced great work, other people Mm -hmm. with day jobs have produced great work. And that's what I try to keep in mind as I go through this moment in my life. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, your first novel, a particular kind of black man, which you know, as we mentioned, is an auto is a is what a piece of auto fiction. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you know, earlier in the conversation, you know, Utah, where you grew up, is a very important part of it. Yeah, and how the title of the book, you know, if if I am saying like saying it correctly, would be like kind of referring to like how a black man can be quote unquote like read as like white enough. <laughs> to like do well in society yeah. um or to to blend into a place like utah you know 30 years sure, ago sure. um yeah. you know and the, book, <laughs> and the book takes on you know i uh you know identity and um disassociation um you know growing up in a way in a way maybe like reconciliation at least with kind of like conceptions of yourself or you know family and heritage. And anyway, you know, in the book, you know, uh, you know, in the beginning of the book, there's a lot on, on the parents in the book. So, you know, I should also mention to people not familiar that, um, the character in the book is Tunde. Yep. Um, so it gets into Tunde's parents with the mother and mental illness and, and this, like, you know, this, the big character of the father is like religious or spiritual and, um, I mean, he's just such a force in the book and, you know, starting the ice cream truck business and all this stuff. And and I know that the ice cream truck business is true to your life because of the essay that I read, (laughs) that really great essay. uh, (laughs) Is that Masters of Reality? Was that one? Yeah. yeah. And you you use this experience um, with him to kind of act as like a metaphor for like manipulation of truth and power and like the Trump yeah. era. Um, so I know that that part of it <laughs> at the very least is true to your life, you know, but <laughs> I'd love myself. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd love to hear more about, you know, when you're doing auto fiction, you know, in particular when you're writing, you know, this character, you know, Tunde, who we know is not you, but we also know <laughs> is very much rooted in you and, and yeah. creating this family for this character. You know, I, I wondered, you know, how, like how much of it or like what of it is like true to your life? If it's, if at least in the beginning, it's all very true to life or, you know, what were kind of, you know, some of the, you know, ingredients in the family portrayed in the book that, you know, are very true to you. IRL. Yeah. As we said earlier. Yeah. Um, so I, when I started the book, I didn't know what I was writing. I thought, I thought I was writing a memoir. And so it starts from an explicitly autobiographical place so much so that, the character's name was initially Tope, mm-hmm. um, and it was for a lot of the life of the book. Um, but as I continued to write, um, I just noticed that things were happening to the character that hadn't happened to me, and that I had kind of formal ideas and concerns that 
had nothing to do with my life, you know, that I wanted to do on the page. And so, um, but I was still like sort of, I think the interesting thing for me was that I was able to kind of use my life as a template to ask and answer a lot of questions about sort of identity construction, um, about, about growing up um, in a really, in a place that doesn't have much connection to who your family is or who you are as well. Um, and so this novel presented me with an opportunity to do that. And I also wanted to, I hadn't read, you know, like I read a lot, or at least I did before I had kids. (laughs) And, and, uh, um, I just wanted, I didn't see anything, you know, one of the great things about reading, of course, is that you kind of, uh, you've encounter feelings that you thought before only perhaps you had felt. And so that's one of the great things I'm reading a book now and I'm like, wow, I felt that way. I've never, uh, and I I thought it was a private kind of feeling or a private kind of thought. And it's interesting to see somebody else have that feeling and thought and it makes me feel like I'm part of this human thing in in a way that I don't always feel right. Like I'm part of this larger collective and Mm -hmm. we're all, I'm not among those people who will say, oh, we're all the same. It's all fine. Right. <laughs> but, you know, in a way, we're all the same as well, right? So that's yeah. part of the reason why you pick up a book and read it. Um, but that said, I, I had particular experiences that really felt like sort of super um, isolating experiences that I didn't see reflected elsewhere. And I, for a long time in my life, thought like I must be the only person who's kind of growing up and feeling this way, who's grown up. Like I grew up in Utah as a black person. So already I felt like kind of separate from a lot of things that were happening in the country. And then I moved to Texas and I'm like, how many people have had that experience? And even as I was writing a book, I thought like, can I write, write a novel? Is this like too, like, is this too separate and unique from what everyone else has experienced? Um, but then that became the motivation for it because I thought, I said, well, I'm a human being. And even if I'm a human being who's kind of dropped into these weird contexts, these weird circumstances, like I'm still responding to it as a human being. And I think there's something of literary merit and worth in that. And so the challenge of writing it um, was kind of believing all the while that, you know, there would be an audience that was interested that wasn't like, you know, black people who were born and raised in Utah then moved to Texas, right? Like there was something <laughs> about the project that would appeal to other human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I have to say, when I was sending the book around, a number of people did say, well, this is just such a unique experience that um, I'm not sure there's an audience for it. (laughs) Um, I'm heartened that, you know, there was, you know, my editor came in and said, no, I think this, you know, I I believe in this book and I believe in your work that my agent had said that from the very beginning. Um, And so and then eventually a publishing house took it up and said, yeah, we believe in this as well. Although, you know, we could have that conversation as well about the way the book was marketed, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I had to kind of jump through these hoops. And the thing is that I was insisting that I wanted to focus on the story of the kid and, and his identity journey. Um, and also what happens after that and how his brain is kind of in a way not destroyed, but really s- severely compromised by this. And then at the end, it, he kind of, uh, comes to a new conclusion about who he is. And so that journey was important to me. And I'm eternally grateful to the people in my life who facilitated it, you know, my mm-hmm. agent, my editor, and the publishing house for helping me get it out. Yeah. And so you kind of answered another question I had because I was wondering, so it's interesting here that it started as memoir because <clears throat> I was wondering about like where that decision came from. If you always kind of conceived of it as a novel, you know, I was wondering if it had to do with narrative arc or something like that. Yeah. I, and I was also wondering about, you know, what you said, how 
um, the character was Tope for a long time, and then you did change it to Tunde. And one of the question, my questions was, you know, you know, why Tunde over Tope? Um, you know, you know, what was kind of going on in your head to make that decision? You know, because I. Th- it, did it feel dangerous to use your name? Like you're you're worried that people are gonna yeah. read it too much as memoir? Because yeah. I've seen I've definitely seen some autofiction pieces where the narrator and the writer have the same name, right? But you absolutely, but you yeah. but they are different characters. So was that that was the main thing for you? Is just kind of like a little extra layer of self protection from crazy people who are going to conflate? That's such a good question and one that I've grappled with now. Um, as I'm writing my my book now. Um, I think what happened was that I, is that the, the more I wrote, the more I thought like, okay, uh, this is not about my life in a way, like in a way that I, I would think with memoir. And so that, so that's when I made the decision, like, okay, this is probably a novel, not a memoir. Mm-hmm. But then the name thing, um, I don't know. I just, you know, what I felt was that I would better be able to, kind of allow the character to do what he wanted to do if he didn't have my name that I felt like I would be kind of tethered mm. to the character in a way but still if he still had my name now that just could be because of where I was in my trajectory as a writer you know now I don't think I'd feel that way but now I also have a lot more confidence in my ability to you know craft a narrative and to kind of do the kinds of things that one needs to do in order to produce a work a novel um, and I think at that point it was just so precarious and, you know, like I was just hanging on by a thread so that the literary world, you know, <laughs> like, I'm like, no one takes the work seriously. How am I going to get it out there? What do I have to do in order to, and I'm already not compromising on a bunch of things. I'm not compromising on the narrative arc here. I'm not compromising on some of the decisions I've made, like the textual decisions I've made, um, like, you know, the way that I'm placing text on a page, or I even insisted to my publisher at a certain point that, um, you know, typically in a book, you'll have the title of the of the book on one page and the name. And at a certain juncture in the book, I said, strip that away because I yep. want to show that something is happening here. And there was a back and forth about it. And they thought I was being difficult. And I was like, no, <laughs> like, so I'm already kind of like, you know, stepping out right. uh, here. And I thought like, OK, well, I, on the level of the name, you know, maybe that will enable me to kind of make the choices I want to make. Mm. So I think in some ways, it's a matter of confidence as well. Like I've already like stepped out and kind of said a bunch of things about what I won't compromise on. Yeah. And is this a step too far? You know, in my view, like if I'm also internally, psychologically, if I'm insisting on putting my name on it as well. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that part up, actually, because, you know, I did have a question, you know, about that um, um, part in the book formally, because it's very much, you know, a narrative for a while. And then, um there's kind of, you know, this big dissonance in the character and the questioning of, of reality. And, um, and, and then we kind of get to that part in the book you're mentioning where it switches from kind of, um, it's not, well, it's not entirely narrative, but, um, it switches to where it'll, it'll just have like, it's like journal. It's like uh, not journalistic, but like, a yeah, journal journaling, <laughs> journaling. Sure. and, sure. and there'll be like a sentence on a page, um, but also like where the sentence is positioned, like aesthetically, whether the sentence like wraps to another page, very much like concerns you would have, you know, working on a poem or like laying out a poem in a book. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was wondering, you know, about the experience of, of doing that because, you know, 
the publisher you had is is a is a um you know a bigger publisher more mainstream publisher at, at least to me like in, <laughs> in the very small yeah. press world um <laughs> yeah you know and i imagine that there that that would have been an interesting negotiation <laughs> to have with yeah. a traditional publisher because it's not the kind of thing you'd see happen in the quote unquote kind of book they'd probably want out of you. And so this might yeah. kind of this might kind of relate to what you said earlier about how the book was marketed. So like I yeah. have the, I have the paperback version, right? And it's sure. like this and it's like to, it's like this is a book club book. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. like this is yeah. a book club book for um middle-aged white people to sit around <laughs> and be like I had an ex- ethnic experience. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, do you get the feeling of that? Like the way that it's marketed? Like, yeah, you know, I think, and I, I'm not sure if I fault the marketing team. Cause I think their, their idea and responsibility is to get this book into as yeah. many. Oh, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to shit on it, but I think. No, it, no, I don't. Hey, yeah. that's, <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to do that as well. Um, <laughs> but I think it relates to what you were saying. Absolutely. Earlier. No, I'm with you. I'm with you yeah. entirely. Cause I think that, so, for example, they started marking the book as an immigration story. Mm-hmm. And that kind of irked me because from my perspective, it's not like so if you're focusing on the story of the father and the mother coming over from Nigeria to America, then yes. But they're not the protagonists of the story. The protagonist is the child, uh, Tope slash Tunde, right? Like he is the protagonist of the tale. Um, and I think there was a kind of reticence around marketing his story. And I recognize why. I mean, like there aren't. I mean, it's the kind of, at least at this juncture in history, literary and otherwise, it's a kind of almost singular story, especially if you're kind of thinking about the character growing up in Utah. Like, there's just so much about the story that it's like, okay, this is a story about one person. So I get why you'd say, okay, what's the biggest angle we can take mm-hmm. here? Immigration angle. And there's the benefit that a number of immigration stories have been published to great acclaim over the course of the past, like, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um one could list a number of writers who have excelled in this genre and who have become sort of like iconic American literary figures. And so I get why you'd want to do that. Um, And I didn't really push back because, you know, again, I'd already kind of, I'd really press them on all kinds of things. I'm somebody who's read, I assumed that I would, my book would be published by a smaller press because that's what I read. I read a lot of small press books. You know, I read like, you know, New Direction and Europa and uh, Grey Wolf. And, you know, I kind of play in that world. And that's those are the books that I was reading. So I assumed that that would be where. And so when a big, you know, I guess it was formerly Big Five. Who knows what we're at? (laughs) Big (laughs) Two. I think we're Big big 2.5 now. The one. (laughs) uh, So when I got that offer. I was like, I'm not going to compromise who I am. And to their credit, they didn't ask me that, you know, I did, there was some back and forth. There was back and forth about like this, you know, change of POV. Uh, and I've already mentioned kind mm-hmm. of my reference point for that was Damon Galgut and his work. And, and I thought that would be a much more accurate way of rendering. Like, so for example, I read a bunch of books that kind of do something somewhat similar, but it seems like kind of show off you like, okay, I'm going to do the second person thing now. It happens in short story collections a lot where like there's a lot of short story writers say I need to have a second person story. I need to have a third person story. I need to have a first person story. Mm-hmm. I thought like, what if 
that is actually coming from the narrative, like the, right. what the narrative requires. That would be super interesting. If the narrative requires a second person voice, not requires a third person voice, it requires a first person voice. There was pushback on that. They're like, why don't you just kind of do a one POV? Mm-hmm. This might be confusing. And so I pushed back and my editor pushed back. We won that one. And then I said, okay, like, all this stuff is happening. You mentioned the poetry. I love poetry. Mm-hmm. Most of these, a lot of these books are po- poetry books. And I, you know, aspired to be a poet before I made the concession and said, okay, I'll do prose instead. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, there was pushback about that. There was pushback about, so the, because I'm like actively, I didn't want them to kind of say, okay, he's a problem child. Like, mm-hmm. let's, And so when the marketing team was like, okay, let's do the immigration narrative. And I think a lot of the marketing copy, like the blurb, the, the, the kind of copy on the back and is kind of takes that line. Um, and then when I got my first one of my first reviews in Harper's, I was elated to see that review. I was elated, I should say, that Harper's was reviewing my book. And they in the first couple sentences, I think, of the review said, well, he's an immigrant. I thought, gosh, like, here's how perhaps the marketing copy influences the way that reviewers mm-hmm. are reading the book, because they're kind of taking on this idea that it's an immigration tale when it's not. I think they're missing right. some like important nuance here. Um, so I think I managed to kind of smuggle a, a small press book into a big. <laughs> hey, good on, good on you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, you mentioned that, well, you mentioned another novel, but that, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not, not going hard on it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is this is this another work, you know, more of auto fiction? Like, is Tunde still a character or... You know, yeah. or, or so is it, you know, is it an extension of the first book or do you? It kind of is. Yeah, I think it's autofiction. I'm stepping into it fully. So no need for, you know, another a pseudonym here. Um, and it's just and again, I think that's kind of a kind of literary confidence, if you'll allow me to kind of <laughs> use that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I and again, I, I have a lot of like ideas around form that I want to explore. Um, and, you know, I think the one thing I've said to myself again and again is that, like, I think there are a couple pathways here. Um, one is to kind of do the expected thing. And the, the irony is that I think that pressure becomes more acute when you're thinking about the second book, because the second book in so many ways kinds of kind of can make a career. The de- debuts are treated differently from everything mm-hmm. else. Debut is like, oh, there's this new, fresh, new voice. Uh-huh. And you see a lot of the same phrases attached to a lot of debut novelists. Like, gosh, this is a fresh. This is you've never seen this, this new perspective. They're all saying the same thing. Um, but the second book is an opportunity to kind of step into a career. Mm-hmm. And one thing you can do, and, and having read a bunch of books, I kind of know the trajectory that a lot of writers have chosen to take. Like the one, the first book is a more intimate, more autobiographical tale. The second is a kind of big, here's a book about America. Here's a book about <laughs> like this and that. Um, here's a book about slavery, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I'm resisting that, you know, I don't know like if it's just something in me or if I'm not, I, I think those are really important topics, but I'm not sure that I want to necessarily write about that. So yeah, it's, it's, but I'm interested in, you know, stuff that's happened over the course of the past couple of years. I'm interested in, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm interested mm-hmm. in, in the corona, the pandemic and how that's mm-hmm. impacted us. I, I remember reading last year, a bunch of novelists wrote op-eds about like, okay, let's not do the, the, the coronavirus novel. Um, you know, let's wait a few years. And I think, I think that's exactly the wrong approach. You know, I think, and I'm writing an essay about this as well. Um, 
I, I do think that a lot of a lot of novelists think that the best novels kind of emerge from this God perspective, which is I'm able to step back and assess everything that happened and put everything in its proper proper place and say, okay, here's why this happened. Here's how people were impacted by it. And I think I'm more interested in the human perspective, which is I'm living in this thing right now. It's happening. Obviously, I don't have, you know, an omniscient perspective here. Mm -hmm. I'm not able to say, like, this is why this happened. But to report from the eye of the storm, I think, is a really interesting thing to do. And so that's the approach I'm taking with my book. Now I'm reporting from the eye of the storm, how it is to be a human being at this point in the 21st century, being impacted and buffeted by all these things that are happening, um, recognizing that I won't have that omniscient perspective, but in sacrificing that omniscience, I'm sort of embracing fully the humanness of this, you know, like what it is to be a human being right now. All right, that's my conversation with Tope Follerin. Go check out his novel, A Particular Kind of Black Man, and go check out some of his essays all over the internet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.